0: May be seated. Lord God, I pray that you would be with us this morning. I pray, God, that the words of my lips and the meditations of our heart would be glorifying to you. It's in Christ's name. I pray. Amen. 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 And good morning, morning, and happy New Year. Happy New Year. Year. Thank you. That's. I know that's a little confusing. It's not January first. I get that, and I haven't gone crazy. But uh, it is the beginning of a new Christian year. Today is day one of our liturgical calendar. Today is Advent Sunday. And, uh, you know, I was tempted this morning to actually bring uh, one of those New Year's hats or one of those annoyingly uh, loud uh, noisemaker things that you have on New Year's Eve, but I was kind of afraid one of these guys might pull me from behind the lectern because I don't think we're allowed to use props in Anglican (laughs) Service's um, for those of you who don't know, my name is Deacon Tex. Uh, I'm not typically uh, the one of, one of the preachers here. I, I do preach on occasion, but um, again, my name is Deacon Tex. I'm happy to be up here this morning uh, sharing this word with you and really excited to be up here on the first uh, day of the new calendar year. It's, it's really neat. So um, I'll spare you the props and I'll just say happy new liturgical year. Um, but the reason I wanted to drive this home and really kind of make a point of it is because we are different. I wanted to make a point that Christians are different. We use a different calendar. We use a liturgical calendar. Sure, we use the same days and months of the year as the rest of the world, but, but we use our, our liturgical calendar and we do that on purpose. We use it for a very specific purpose. We use our liturgical calendar to help us focus on the life and work of Christ. That's what this calendar is for. So just like The rest of the world celebrates the beginning of a new year. We celebrate the beginning of a new year as well. But we do that a little differently. I don't know about you, but I've been a part of uh, my wife and I. We lived in Mexico for a few years uh, when we gained our marriage, about four years. And one of the New Year's traditions there, it's it's a fun tradition, um, but it's at the clock. When the clock strikes midnight on New Year's Eve, you have 12 grapes in front of you. And every time the clock dings, you have to eat a grape right? And it's for each month of the year. And if you don't die from doing that, if you don't choke and die, <laughs> uh, you actually will have a prosperous year. Every month will be prosperous. You'll be financially safe and uh, you will uh, have good luck throughout the year. And it's funny, as I was preparing for this sermon, I was thinking about all of those different uh, traditions around the world. There's, there's several of them. If, if you look them up, uh, they're, and they're, some of them are bizarre. Uh, there was one in Colombia I found that they take uh, three potatoes, and they, they peel one, leave one unpeeled, and have one partially peeled, all right? So they stick those under the bed, and as soon as the clock strikes midnight, they reach under the bed, and they grab it. They grab a potato, and whatever potato they get, if it's the partially peeled one or the peeled one, it represents, one represents uh, a, a good fortunate year, a uh, financially stable year, it says. Uh, one is... Uh, not going to be so great of a year. That's probably the one that's not peeled. Uh, and then the one that's partially peeled, it's going to be a mixture of both. So we, we've seen all these traditions uh, around the world. I, I, I think one of the most bizarre ones, and I'll have to talk to uh, Robin and Donna when they come back. Uh, they're on a trip this year. There. Our, uh, Father Robin is, they're from Ireland. And there was a really interesting one from Ireland where they take Christmas bread, which I imagine is stale by New Year's Day. And they just walk around their house and they beat the walls with it. And they beat the windows and the doors, and the whole idea is that it's supposed to ward off uh, evil spirits and usher in prosperity for the year. But if you're anything like me, you grew up, you know, I grew up in the South. Uh, Chris, uh, New Year's Day was sitting in front of the TV watching college football, right? <laughs> and eating what? Collars, collard greens and black-eyed peas. That's right, collard greens and black-eyed peas. And if you ate your collards and black-eyed peas, the collards represented money, Black eyed peas represent luck. Eat all that, you're gonna have good luck and you're gonna be financially stable through the rest of the year, through all your year. So, you know, I do this. I'm not just trying to give you a cultural lesson on New Year's Day, but it is to make a point. I looked up several of these. in every single one of them that I found, and there was some, like I said, pretty bizarre, every one of them had something to do with financial success throughout the coming year or good fortune. And that's telling. It's telling because... That is what we typically as people put our hope in, right? That's, what we're, that's how we start the new year. We, we, we start the new year hoping that we're gonna have financial success and good luck or good fortune. And so obviously those are, <clears throat> those are fun, those are enjoyable traditions and, you know, have fun with them. But, uh, but this is, but how do Christians start out the new year? What are our traditions of a new liturgical year? Well, we start our new year with the season of Advent, now, like many folks here at St. Thomas, I didn't grow up uh, with a liturgical calendar. Uh, we grew up uh, in a Christian home, but it, we didn't follow the, the church year. And so Advent to me meant that I would get a, uh, like a little calendar, I'm sure you guys know what I'm talking about here, that, that had little doors in it. And every day I would get to open that door and find a little piece of cheap waxy chocolate, and I loved it. And I would eat that chocolate every day, and I would count down the days to Christmas. And that's what Advent was. It was a countdown to Christmas. And that's fun, you know, but, but that, there wasn't much more to it. Uh, but there is, there is so much more to this beautiful season. There really is. And, and it is a season of expectation. It is a, sit, a season of sitting and waiting. And we get to sing some of the hymns that we don't sing throughout the rest of the year, like, come, oh, come, Emmanuel, like we started this morning we're gonna sing, let all mortal flesh keep silent this morning. I love that song. Um, it, it is a season that we, we focus on and sit in our expectation of Christ to come. And in the story of redemption, we remember how God's people waited thousands of years for a savior. And when the savior came, he came as a baby. And conveniently, this This season is right in front of Christmas. But interestingly enough, our readings and most of our service and all of our worship typically is geared towards Christ's second coming, his more glorious coming. And you see, the reason I brought up the other New Year's traditions is because they deal with hope hope for success, for good fortune, for money. But in the same way that we have a different calendar and we have a different way of setting up our year, we also have a different hope. We are motivated by something different than the world. So as Christians, what is that hope? What are we striving for? What gets us up in the morning? I mean, why do we come to church on Sunday mornings when a lot of the world is not? I like mama's boy just as much as the rest of Athens, right? (laughs) I love pancakes, so why do I come here instead? Why do we live these lives as Christians? Like our Romans passage this morning, what did it say? To owe no one anything except to love one another and to put off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Why do we do that? I love that the text this morning, the Romans had that armor of light. Why do people put on armor? To go into battle, right? People have armor to go into battle. And the Bible never says the Christian life is gonna be easy. In fact, it says the exact opposite. Christ says that we're gonna be hated by everyone just as he was hated. There is a constant warning in the New Testament about the Christian life and how it's not going to be an easy life. There's gonna be trials and tribulations we are going to face, sufferings. So what is this battle for? Why do we go through what we do? What is our hope? And to answer that question, I wanna to turn to our Old Testament passage this morning, Isaiah chapter two. And if you have your Bibles, you can turn there with me. <clears throat> and this is a, it's a great passage. It starts out with uh, the title here is the mountain of the Lord. Now I know these were added later, these, these you know, uh, headings over the chapters, but I just love that one, the mountain of the Lord. You know you're getting into something there when you get to that scripture. But it is the hope. Isaiah's hope here is the mountain of the Lord. So let's find out what that mountain's about. Starting in chapter two, verse two, it says, it shall come to pass that in the latter days, now that is latter, I actually looked this up, I wanna make sure, this is final. This is the end days, when it is over that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains shall be lifted up above all the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of, Je- the, house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. All the nations will flow to this mountain. You see, Isaiah's painting a picture for God's people. And it's it's important to know who he's he's talking to. The Israelites had been through wars after wars. The nation had been separated. They were a people that had been enslaved. And a large part of Isaiah's message is about why they had gone through that but it is also paired with this beautiful hope to put in front of them, this mountain of the Lord. This passage is about the future hope of Israel, the future hope that a Messiah will come and will reign over all the earth, all of the nations, any of the nations that had had hurt God's people are going to be put under his rule. And this hope, That Isaiah gives to the Israelites is the same hope that we have. The Messiah coming coming to reign over all the earth is our hope. It is the hope of Advent. It is the great Christian hope. That is what should get us up in the morning. That is why we do what we do. That is why we strive to live holy lives, go through the tribulations that we do. We believe in a prize at the end of the fight. We believe that Christ is coming back to earth. We actually believe this. And when he does, he will not not come as a baby in swaddling clothes. No, he's going to come back as King Jesus. He will be coming to rule over all the nations and all the world. And what will this rule look like? Isaiah gives us a little bit more of that picture here This is how he describes it. He says, many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his path, for out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. I know it's hard to imagine, but can we try to think of what that actually might look like? Think of the entire world, all the nations, following Christ? Can we actually imagine what our world would look like when that happens? You know, this idea that I think a lot of us grew up with, or at least the one that's on TV and and movies of, of us escaping earth in the afterlife, growing wings and sitting on clouds, it's not really what Scripture teaches. There's nowhere in Scripture that you'll find anything like us escaping the earth and, and sitting on clouds all day. In fact, in the scriptures, what we actually see about the end times and about afterlife, it's not individuals escaping earth, it's actually heaven coming down. We see that over and over in scriptures, heaven coming down, God coming down to be with his people. The whole reason we were created From the very beginning of the Garden of Eden, when God walked with Adam and Eve, that's the culmination of our history. That's what we are hoping for and what we believe will happen. And that is not going to be us just floating around. We will be created people. We are created people. We will be able to eat and drink and feast and work with our hands. You know, that's why we say Christ is the first fruits. We believe in a physical resurrection of Christ. We believe that he really did raise from the dead. He had a new body. He was able to sit with his disciples, talk, teach. He ate, he ate a fish. It's a great verse, it's great scripture. When he sits down and he eats, with his, eats a fish and he does this because he's showing them, I'm, he's not a ghost, he's a body. We're going to have real bodies. He is the first fruit of the resurrection not some celestial being that just kind of floats around, right? Now, it's cool. He gets to walk through walls. We might get to walk through walls. I don't know. It's, it's going to be amazing. I'm excited. But we will have real bodies, and we'll be able to do work with our hands. You know, Deacon Joe, or sorry, Father Joe. Now I apologize. Sorry, I apologize. Back, back when he was Deacon Joe, a couple weeks ago, and uh, Deacon Joe was, for those of you who don't know, he was ordained last Sunday as, a, as Father Joe. Uh, back when he was Deacon Joe, he, uh, he gave a sermon two weeks ago about work and all the ways that our work can glorify God, but also how sin in the world has corrupted and distorted work and how people are abused by work and use work to abuse others. And this, is always, this has always been the case, right? From the beginning of time, we see, and the Israelites are no stranger to this idea. I mean, they had had overlords and been enslaved for many, many years. But just think of what a community, what a people, what a world would look like if that didn't exist. If people truly lived and worked, in community with one another. In the beginning of our reading, we see this this idea of all the nations coming to the mountain of the Lord. Can you imagine when all the nations and all of our different cultures and ideas and ways of life come together and and sin is gone? What we'll be able to do and how we'll be able to glorify the Lord. Imagine what we'll be able to build Imagine the neighborhoods, the communities, the cities when everyone works together in love for one another, just like Christ had taught us. You know, in the second to last chapter of Isaiah, if you skip ahead. Isaiah. Oh, sorry. I skipped way ahead. (laughs) It's Isaiah chapter 65. We get a, a fuller picture of what Isaiah is talking about here. He says, starting in verse 17, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then continue in verse 21, they shall build houses and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. They shall not plant and another eat For like the days of a tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall enjoy the work of their hands. They shall not labor in vain or bear bear children for calamity, for they shall be the offspring of the blessed of the Lord and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. God will be there with them. While they are yet speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox. The dust shall be the serpent's food. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. Isaiah is sharing God's promise with his people. And can you imagine what that must have sounded like for the Israelites to be able to work and build homes, not for their overlords, to not be enslaved, but to be able to work with their own hands, feed their families. This is the hope and God ruling over this. He's saying, you are going to go through tribulations, but this is what we should put in front of us. This is the hope. This is what's going to happen when the Messiah comes. And how does that work out? He continues in verse 4. He says that in verse 4, he, that is the Messiah, shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many people. And they shall, not beat, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Oh, House of Israel, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. All wrongs will be made right when Christ returns. He will judge the nations and his judgment will stand. Those who have been dealt with cruelly will be restored. And those who have, who have lorded over others will be humbled that day, the judgment day of our Lord is coming. And because of that, because of his reign, because of his rule, listen what he says, there will be no war. And again, that's a hard hard one. That's a hard one for us to imagine. The Israelites beating their their swords into plowshares, into tools to be able to, to cultivate the earth instead of fight and rule and reign over it. The atrocities of war will end. Like I said, that's a hard one for us to imagine. Ever since I've been alive, war's been going on. I think in all of history, there's probably never a time where there hasn't been someone at war, some country or tribe or civilization with, at war with someone else. But one day, Isaiah says, all that is going to end and that day is coming And that's part of this great hope. We will no longer need to learn war. And he ends his passage with this plea. He says, oh, house of Jacob, come. Come, let us walk in this light. Put this hope in front of you. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let that guide us. At the end of the Bible, in the book of Revelation, John actually repeats this. You know, John's revelation in chapter in the last book of the Bible, it's actually not a brand new vision. It's a continuation of this vision. And jumping ahead here the verse to chapter 21, John, he writes, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven "'From God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. "'And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, "'Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. "'He will dwell with them and they will be his people "'and God himself will be their God. "'He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. "'Death shall be no more. "'Neither shall they be mourning or crying or pain." The former things have passed away. John's repeating that message from Isaiah. God's mountain will come down. God will come and live among his people. And this is not pie in the sky theology. It's not escapist theology. It's not, oh, we're just going to escape this world. No, 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 this is God coming down to his creation to live with his created beings. This is true hope. God dwelling with his people, just like we were created to be in a world where there is no sin. That is our hope. And you know, hope is, hope is a very powerful, very powerful thing. And so far, this this sermon and these, these passages have been, have been a painting, a, a, a picture of what that might look like. But it's not just a picture. This hope is actually life transforming. This hope is as practical as it is beautiful. Because what we believe about our future will control how we live our lives today. I heard this uh, illustration recently from uh, Pastor Tim Keller. He he explained it this way about hope. He says, you put two guys in a room and you tell them that they got to work 10 hours a day. They got a table and they've got gears and they got to screw gears together. It's the same gear. And they do it over and over and over and over for 10 hours a day for a whole year. First guy, he says that, tells tells the first person he's going to make $20,000 at the end of the year. Right? The second person, that job, he's gonna make 20 million. Now you know what's gonna happen. After a month or so, the first person's gonna do what? He's gonna get so frustrated and quit. He's gonna say, This is enough. I can't do this. It's not worth it. It's too tedious. It's too boring. What about that second guy? Just whistling while he works, right? $20 million at the end of a year. I could do that. But I mean, it makes sense. You know, that's not a surprise, right? What, what's, the, what's the difference there? Same situation, two men, same situation. The difference is what they believe about their future. And it's the same with us. Do we believe that this world is all that we've got? Do we believe that when we die, that we're gonna rot? And do we believe that one day the, the sun is gonna burn up, the world's gonna be destroyed, and all the memories and all, everything that we've done will be for nothing? Is that what we believe? Or do you believe in the resurrection? Do we believe in a new heaven and a new earth? Do we believe in God's judgment where all things will be remembered and dealt with? Those are two totally different futures. And depending on what you believe, you're going to live two totally different ways. And this plays out throughout all of history. Isaiah is sharing a hope with a people that have been just torn apart by sickness, by war, slavery. And it's not going to stop anytime soon for them. But he's giving them this hope. He's giving them a future to look forward to. And then when John echoes it in Revelation, who is he he writing to? He's writing to the early church. They needed hope. Because why? Why? they were going to be persecuted beyond belief. And they needed a hope because their lives are controlled by what they believed about their future. The early Christians were able to stand up to such torture. They were were able to be burned alive, fed to the lions, all because of this hope before them. This hope that we celebrate today and throughout the season of Advent, this hope is what built the church. It's as practical as it is beautiful. The early martyrs were able to face persecution in such a way and death that it mystified those who saw it. People would see and they would ask, what is it that they have? How can they... How can they take the punishment that they're taking? One of the church fathers, Tertullian, a very early church father, he wrote that the blood of the martyrs is like seed for the church. He says that we are not a new philosophy, but of divine revelation. That's why they can't just exterminate us. The more you kill, the more we are. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because Those who see us die wonder why we do. For we die like the men you revere, not like slaves or criminals. And when they find out, they join us. You see how practical this hope is? Do you see how practical this is? Now, I know no one in this room is going to be faced with the type of persecution that the early church faced. And thank God, none of us will be enslaved or ruled over like the Israelites. But there are so many things in this life that are gonna drag us down. And we all have longings in us for a world that is not affected by sin. We all have longings. And that longing, that hope has been put in you by Christ, by God. Now, I know this is a, First world problem for sure. And I'm not comparing myself to other folks that have, that have lived much harder lives. But, but when I was writing this sermon, I actually put together most of the sermon sitting on the side of the road in my car uh, because I was waiting on a tow truck. A um, few hours actually, and I had a few hours to kill. Um, the week before that, our entire HVAC system had gone out in our house and a couple weeks before that, our entire family were sick for about two weeks. So it was a rough month, to say the least. And I was sitting there, waiting on that truck to, to come, just very upset that my car was broken down. I, honestly, I was getting pretty depressed, feeling upset, all the things that had happened. And I was just moping. And then I actually opened the scriptures and started working on the sermon and thinking about God's hope. Now, it's not me, I'm not special, but God's hope, this transformed my day. Thinking ahead, and I was able to get through that. I I was very stressed out, very annoyed, and, and still dealing with some of that stuff. But it hit me, it hit me that one day, one day, I'm not gonna have to worry about broken down cars, fixing things in the house. I'm not gonna have to worry about sickness, We're not going to have to worry about losing those that we love. And I was able to have joy. And I pray that that would be the case for all of us, that we would this season, that our hope would be put in front of us and that we would be able to have joy, even in struggle, even in some of our first world problems, we would be able to have joy because one day all of these things are going to end. One day, there will be no more death. There will be no more sickness. Our loved ones will not be taken away from us. One day, every tear is going to be wiped away from our eyes. One day, all of our stress and fears and anxieties will be gone. And that's why Advent is at the beginning of the liturgical year. That's why it's here to remind us and to set in front of us for the year, the hope, the Christian hope of what's to come. It's not financial status. Our hope is not in our wealth. Our hope is not in good luck or fortune. Eat all the collards, black-eyed peas you want, but that's not what our hope is in. No, our hope that guides us, directs us, and should affect our lives on a daily basis is the fact that King Jesus is coming. King Jesus is going to return and when he does, his kingdom will be fully established here on earth. That is our hope. That is the light that will guide us through any storm. That is the light of the Lord. So my plea this morning is the same plea of Isaiah's. Oh, St. Thomas, O oh, Christians, come. Let us walk in that light. Let us walk in that hope. Let us walk in the light of the Lord. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.